Ted Hosler is a director of UNESCO World Heritage Center and has worked at the organization for almost 30 years, holding different positions, including overseeing Cultural Heritage Treaty Section, Program Specialist for Nature Heritage and Cultural Landscape, Chief of Europe and North America, and the Chief of the Policy and Statutory Meeting Section. She also managed the Team of History, Memory, and Dialogue section, HMD, dealing with the Slave Route, Silk Route platform, and the UNESCO Silver Prize for Arab Culture. She has published and co-authored 13 books and more than 100 articles, including, all together with Christina Cameron, Many Voices, One Vision, The Early History of World Heritage Convention, Welcome to the creative process. Thank you. So it, you are now in the offices of the UNESCO World Heritage Center, which you are the director. And tell us uh, something of the history and the mission uh, of the center and your World Heritage sites. The World Heritage Center was created on the 1st May 92. And it brought together the two parts of the World Heritage Convention in the Secretariat. Uh, meaning the natural heritage and the cultural heritage, which were previously in two different divisions. And this secretariat is the secretariat of the 1972 World Heritage Convention. It's a very unique um, instrument. It has now 193 countries which have ratified it. Very soon 194, um, because Somalia just signed it. Um, and um, the idea of this convention is really unique um, because it is about heritage of outstanding universal value which is to be preserved not for us but for the generations to come. And that idea came together in 1972 when we had the first international conference on the human environment, the first UN conference on this. And it was quite interesting. It was a time when you had many NGOs. It was after the publication of um, uh, a book which was called Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And um, it was the idea that there are so many threats to this amazing heritage that the whole of the international community has to do something. So at this Stockholm conference in 1972, uh, the drafts were brought together and in November 1972, UNESCO's general conference adopted this unique instrument. And it came into force in 1975. And um, in 1978, the first 12 sites were already inscribed. Amazing sites like um, number one, which is mm -hmm. our uh, counting started with the Galapagos Islands, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, the laboratory of Darwin uh, and a unique natural world heritage site and uh, or some historic cities like uh, the center of Krakow um, or the Rockland churches in Ethiopia. So very diverse sites were included on UNESCO's World Heritage List. When I started, we had about 200 sites. That was in 91. And now I'm in charge of a team dealing with 1,121 sites. And the listing doesn't stop. There are more and more sites to come. 
Um, the problem for us, it's not the listing, because this convention in principle is not about a list. This convention in principle, as the title of the convention itself says, it's about the protection of the world's cultural and natural heritage. So what we do actually at the World Heritage Center is the conservation of World Heritage Sites. And that is increasingly problematic in the 21st century because we have so many threats. We have ill-advised uh, development, developers don't taking care of um, World Heritage Sites. We have pollution and climate change. We have natural disasters and um, uh, fires, um, especially uh, this year. Um, and we have um, a lot of other threats, um, which means that we have currently 53 sites on the list of World Heritage in Danger. Um, and over time, two sites were even delisted, which is a problem because this should never, ever happen. But it happened because of specific uh, issues at these sites and they lost their outstanding universal value. And uh, it's really the international community which has to get together to safeguard these unique places. And we have more and more money in the system to prepare nominations. But when we come to the safeguarding of sites, um, we have less and less money and we have more and more problems. We even have intentional destruction, which was the shock of the world in uh, 2001 when the Bamiyan Buddhas were destroyed. Um, but uh, in the 21st century, we saw all the destructions going on in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Libya. So we work with a very small team at UNESCO, um, very passionate team, I have to say, and I'm very proud of my team, but we don't have the means we should, we should have to preserve the most outstanding places on Earth. And what, because we're an educational initiative, and what, because if I may invite students to get involved or to, for their, just to increase their awareness, what might they do? We have a lot of programs with young people. Um, we have programs for young professionals. It's the so-called World Heritage Education Program, which we had in different phases. We did uh, start with schools where we had curricular development, including heritage. Um, we work now more with young professionals between 20 and 35 years old because they move into the professional scene and uh, they are very engaged. I just came back from a meeting in Tunisia for the Arab region with 34 young professionals. Um, it was a program uh, to use heritage against violent extremism. And they created a, a really a peer group um, and worked on projects on the ground. And I really, I loved that to see them being engaged and set standards against uh, violent extremism. Oh, no, it's really beautiful and it's lovely. I mean, I, I can imagine, for me, I'm just endlessly curious about things and it, can, it seems to me like your job as director is some, we'll never get bored, well, there'll always be <laughs> something to protect. Tell us a little bit, you mentioned, um, you know, uh, you know some um, Arab countries, and I know that you've also had projects in your life before becoming director here. You worked on the Sharjah um, Prize, or tell us a bit about your path to becoming uh, the director. Oh, it was a, <laughs> a very long and winding road, one can say, um, because I had a totally different career because uh, before I came to UNESCO, because I was a researcher 
And I did my, my PhD at Hamburg University, worked for the French CNRS in a museum, in a science museum. And then I was teaching at UC Berkeley in California. So um, coming back to Paris then, um, because I wanted to finish a book, uh, for the CNRS uh, and uh, actually with ICSU, the International Science Council. And um, uh, I wanted to look up a book in the UNESCO library and I remember there was a person I knew from my studies at Freiburg University and we had a coffee and he introduced me to the former director of the Division of Ecology and he said, Oh, are you interested to work for UNESCO? We have here a program for two years, we need a um, a young German, because it was financed by Germany, uh, with a PhD under 32 years. And I said, oh, very interesting. But actually, um, I would fit the criteria, but uh, uh, I was already um, as uh, invited to, uh, as a professor at Kassel University. And um, my seminars were already announced and the <laughs> students signed up. So I said, it would be very difficult for me. And, and then he said, um, but look, think about it. So I went home and I thought about it and I said, okay, maybe I should go back to Paris because I was in Paris before just for two years. Mm -hmm. Now the two years became 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the original idea because I saw myself more in the university career. And I carried out projects at the University of Hamburg before and so. But I have to say what kept me at UNESCO um, was that I could do something really hands-on. Mm -hmm. um, I love research and I continued to work with universities. I continued, by the way, also to publish with permission of UNESCO. Um, I published a total of 13 books, some of them uh, in the World Heritage Series, uh, especially with my um, uh, background uh, in linking nature and culture, because I have a background in cultural geography and a PhD in natural sciences. Mm -hmm. um, so I worked especially on these nature-culture interactions and cultural landscapes protection. So I continued to publish in the, in the series. I continued with permission from UNESCO um, to do a project on the history of world heritage, which was published um, as a book by Professor Christina Cameron from Montreal University uh, and myself, which is called Many Voices, One Vision on the early history of world heritage. And um, I continued to work with universities. Uh, I was involved in the creation of the very first World Heritage Program at a university, which wa uh, was based at Cottbus University in Germany. And it was a postgraduate program where um, site managers or other people involved in heritage in general um, could do uh, some additional studies. And it was very, very interesting. Today we have 10 such programs worldwide. <laughs> And um, I really thought that was uh, fantastic to get the universities more involved in heritage studies, doing <coughs> also um, comparative studies which can be used for nominations of countries, nominations uh, for the World Heritage List. And I think um, these linkages between research and hands-on conservation in the field is, one, uh, is the heart of the connection.
love to know more of it because I think a lot of people they they may know UNESCO they uh, something about the World Heritage sites but they don't know as much about the linkage between universities the different programs you have um, and to tell us about you know in terms of the site managers and what that involves because it's quite you know you're liaising with local and national the urban department of a city which is a World Heritage city so it's very diverse. So we have this general term um, because for us the site manager is the person who is actually in charge of the sites uh, at a daily uh, level, at a daily basis. So um, these are our counterparts. But in terms of the convention, um, it is the state because the state has ratified the convention and the state has to fulfill the obligations. So, uh, um, but the reporting, because they have to report to us, we have one of the best monitoring systems in the world. We actually have two monitoring systems, reactive monitoring. So if you write to us, there's something wrong, there's a destruction going on at this site, we check it. And I get uh, every day about 100 letters. I got one 30,000 hard copy letters on one single site. The public is really very interested in World Heritage. They see also that UNESCO can do something mm -hmm. um, because we intervene. Mm -hmm. So if something goes wrong at the site, um, we report it to the World Heritage Committee. We send a reactive monitoring mission together with our partners, uh, ECOMOS, the International Council on Monuments and Sites, and uh, the World Conservation Union for Natural Heritage. And um, we do training workshops together with ECROM to build up capacity of site managers and others uh, involved in heritage preservation. So we really do hands-on work to safeguard those sites. But I have to say my biggest disappointment is that um, we have more and more sites and less and less resources, both at the World Heritage Center at the advisory bodies, uh, often at the sites, and uh, we actually would need much more support. And if people are really serious about heritage mm -hmm. conservation, they should invest in it, and they don't. Right. And there's so many things, and then you mentioned like um, ecological degradation, and I can't imagine the number of things. Uh, you said about some of your disappointments. What are some achievements or things that you are so happy to have been involved with and overseen? I am very happy to have been with this convention nearly 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen it from different perspectives and different functions also. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, uh, the most amazing is whenever you go on the ground. Mm -hmm. Because the people really are so committed, they love their sites. And I also realized how important both the natural and the cultural heritage is for the identity of the people. Um, they are really scared about losing their heritage. They see the enormous pressures which are coming uh, through uh, uh, development in all its forms and um, they look uh, at UNESCO for helping with a development which is compatible with the World Heritage Site and which is truly sustainable. Mm -hmm meaning that benefits go actually to the communities and to the people living around the sites and or in the sites. 
and um, they want us to help them to do so. And there's, I imagine there's so many intangibles. And on your uh, NESCO uh, World Heritage List, is there o there's like languages are also endangered or? This is not our program. The World Heritage List is about places mm -hmm. on the Earth's surface. Yes. So everything from uh, Machu Picchu to the Taj Mahal, from the Serengeti to the Warden Sea. Mm -hmm. um, but intangible heritage is a different convention. Mm -hmm. And languages are means to transmit intangible heritage. Yes. So rituals and uh, dances and um, knowledge about the universe. This is under the 2003 Intangible Heritage Convention. It has nothing to do with world heritage. World heritage is um, natural sites, cultural sites, ensembles, buildings, mm -hmm. physical, physical yes. heritage. Mm -hmm. um, sorry. You have many <laughs> programs, um, and so, uh, yes, yeah, so it is, but there's some kind of liaisons, or do you uh, convene uh, with those uh, intangibles, or I, I don't know. There are linkages between the two programs, for example, mm -hmm. um, the knowledge about the Kayas, which mm -hmm. is a sacred site, um, sacred forest uh, at the coast of Kenya. Mm -hmm. This knowledge is an intangible heritage. And the knowledge helped to preserve the biodiversity, the richest biodiversity. 75% uh, of the biodiversity of Kenya can be found in the Kayas. So it's really the knowledge is intangible heritage, whereas the site, the physical site, is world heritage. And we are in France, you are from Germany, uh, to speak about some of those um, heritage sites that are important to France or Germany, or just others that you really have been uh, closely involved in? Um, I <laughs> it's <have> a lot. <laughs> I have seen between 60 and 70 percent of the, of the World Heritage List, so I mm -hmm. can talk about many places, and yeah. uh, there are really amazing places like the Loire Valley uh, here in France, which was originally just uh, the castle of Chambord. But then uh, the authorities decided to nominate a whole river system as a cultural landscape. Mm -hmm. And the Loire is the last uh, um, wild river uh, mm -hmm. of the biggest rivers in, in Europe. So it's, it's quite an amazing site, which includes the traditions of the people, but also all the evolution of um, um, of the uh, urban areas uh, there. Uh, it includes the vineyards, etc. So it's really it's a very fascinating site. We have similar sites also in Germany, like the Rhine Valley, which was not only uh, um, inscribed for uh, the very steep vineyards going down to uh, the Rhine, but also about uh, the history of Romanticism in Germany. So you have uh, very diverse sites, um, like the flyway sites of the Warden Sea in the north of Germany, which is shared among different countries, Denmark, Germany, and the Netherlands. And this is connected to other areas in Europe, like Doniana National Park in, in Spain, um, because of the migratory routes of the birds, and, uh, and linked to Africa with the Banque d'Agrin in Mauritania. So we have this diversity of both natural and cultural heritage, which is um, uh, critical for the identity of the people in Europe, but it's also critical for our survival with the different ecosystems. 
Yes, culture exactly. It's a place where we define who we are, I feel. And so, um, you know, I'm wondering what the heritage uh, program's um, relationship is in terms of with technology. You know, like how is technology maybe helping in the preservation process? Or maybe in some ways we're always moving so quickly forward that it's making us forget about the past. I don't know. No, I think technology is is uh, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, for to make the assessments where we are with the state of conservation, we have satellite imagery which we use through mm-hmm. our Category Two centers. For example, we have one hist in China, and they are using. Uh, imagery uh, to see the evolution of large-scale sites. For smaller sites, it's not possible, but for large-scale sites uh, like Angkor in uh, Cambodia, uh, you can see uh, the evolution there, or for natural sites, you can see, the, for example, the forest cover. Um, Mm -hmm. After a fire, you can um, uh, see where the site was affected, etc., and make an assessment of uh, the percentage of the site being affected. Um, we used a lot of technologies, especially in war zones in the 21st century, because uh, these sites were not accessible. Uh, for example, in Syria, I have been um, to Syria um, just after Daesh was uh, chased out of Palmyra two weeks afterwards in very difficult circumstances. And we use now technology to make the assessment, make um, an overall, um, like an atlas, we publish on the World Heritage Sites in Syria to see the status of the sites and then uh, to be prepared to have the full assessment for the reconstruction phase. And this is why we use technology there. We use also drones for areas which are uh, not accessible. Um, again, especially in war zones, because the areas are full of mines, you cannot go everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like we had actually in, in Cambodia, when the site was inscribed, um, Angkor was inscribed in 1992. Um, it was just a post-war situation. It mm-hmm. was The area was full of mines. Mm-hmm. And it took us 20 years to take them out with um, the different programs and to make the safe pl- uh, the, the place safe uh, for the visitors to come. And now it's an attractive site for many people around the world going to see uh, the, uh, the temples and um, to learn more about the Khmer culture. I'm Feng Rufau, double major in psychology and English graduated from Mount Holyoke College last year. I'm now in the middle of my gap year in Paris, and I had the wonderful opportunity to join the interview with Mrs. Hosler, the director of World Heritage Center in UNESCO. It's very enlightening to learn about the ideology as well as ongoing missions of World Heritage Center from the director herself. As a humanity and social science major, I'm touched by one of the major goals of World Heritage Listing. That is to give the benefits back to the local population and community. In our interview, Mrs. Hostler gave us many examples of new listings, feedbacks of former listings, and the overall listing process. The stories are fascinating in terms of the role of money, culture, history, 
and also the humane nature of UNESCO. Director Hostler also has an inspiring career path. She once chose an academic career. She taught in Hamburg University in Germany, UC Berkeley in United States. And one day, she certainly received a two-year-long job offer from UNESCO. She thought, why not try a different career path for just two years? Then, unexpectedly, the two years became a lifelong devotion. She told us about her love and devotion for UNESCO. For her, this is an institute. That helps her to combine academic interest and passion for hands-on projects. She also introduced us some UNESCO projects designing for young scholars and children. If you are interested in internship opportunities or associate educational projects of UNESCO, please visit World Heritage Educational Website or UNESCO Associated School Project Network. Despite the challenges for the World Heritage sites, Mrs. Hosler addressed in the interview, such as climate change and the lack of funding, UNESCO World Heritage Center is endeavoring to investigate more to raise the interest and awareness of the younger generation. As Mrs. Hosler commented, the rising awareness among young people by questioning what is going on is a good sign. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Mikhail Drosler, director of the UNESCO World Heritage Center. And also, just more broadly, I don't know that everyone knows what UNESCO stands for. It's different branches. The the what just let tell us a little bit more broadly, just about UNESCO. UNESCO has a fantastic mandate.、Mm -hmm. UNESCO was created after the、uh, Second World War, and、um, if it wouldn't exist, you would have to create it because the idea was、um, that war st、uh, war starts in the minds of men, and you have to look at the minds of men to、uh, mm -hmm. get peace、um, in <laughs> in their mindset, so to say. And I think、um, the idea of UNESCO is、uh, to work on education, science, culture, and communication to achieve peace. And this is one of the best goals you you can have. And it was reinforced through the sustainable development、um, goals. And、um, this is the programs we work on uh, in UNESCO um, uh, with our cultural heritage.、Um, The different programs on creativity, including creative cities,、um, uh, on in the scientific field to use science for、um, the creation of peace and to share the knowledge among the peoples of this world. Right, and we have we have one of our collaborating students is here. She is from China. I wonder if you had any questions about heritage sites or different programs. <laughs> Yes,、mm -hmm. um, I am actually really interested in like、um, an article from your website,、uh, which is on social economic impacts of World Heritage、uh, listing. Because from my own experience, like many like national parks, if they are granted with the World Heritage listing, they will put it on their tickets, printed it on their like info desk, on their posters. 
Do you think it's a positive thing, or do you think it's too commercialized? Um, no, I think um, the idea of world heritage is that um, the benefits are also shared among the peoples so um, and the local communities. So it's very important that um, these communities, which, by the way, they wanted to have the listing. It's not UNESCO saying you need to be World Heritage. On the contrary, uh, we are flooded with requests that sites want to become um, uh, the World Heritage status, but they need to be aware um, that uh, with the income gain through tourism, regional development, cultural industries, it's not only tourism, it's all the products which go along with the, uh, the World Heritage um, uh, designation, um, that uh, this needs to be shared. So we have a number of tensions, and I'm very frank with you, um, especially, uh, um, I give you the example of the Mediterranean. When cruise ships come to sites like Barcelona, Venice, Dubrovnik, the local people don't gain from that. The cruise ships come, hundreds and hundreds of tourists go into the city. They go back to the ship, they stay there, they eat there. So what is the gain for the local community and for the World Heritage Site? So there is an issue which you as a site manager, you need to be aware before the listing. And we help actually the sites to define management plans, to define visitor use plans. But I have seen over the last 10 years um, such an increase of tourism um, in some of the sites, not all of the sites, but in a few of the sites, um, that it's no longer a benefit for the local people and um, they turn against the tourists. So in Venice, we have seen um, that some of the local people went on boats and threw uh, paint against the cruise ships. Um, they say, we want to have our sites back for us. Um, so there is a tension, and this tension needs to be dealt with by the site management and by the national authorities. If it means reducing visitors, you have to do that. We have even sites you cannot visit because the damage would be so big. If you look at uh, Lascaux or the Grotte we cannot let any single visitor into the site. So what did they do? They made programs like in the Grotte um, they created Chauvet 2, so you can go there. It's a total uh, reconstruction of the original. Um, but you can see it, you can experience it. It's uh, paint which looks like the original. Um, but they have also now made uh, virtual experiences. So, which is also interesting. Uh, I actually went to the Musée de l'Homme the other day and, and experienced it myself. So you have the, uh, the virtual uh, thing uh, to look at. And I went uh, virtually into the grot and there was a bear coming along. And so it was quite an experience. And I think this is also the future, speaking about technology and make best use to better understand the sites and to put yourself into the feeling of a person who lived there uh, thousands of years ago. And speak, following on from that, for the effects of pollution and thinking about climate change, what is your personal position on uh, some difficult decisions we must make in terms of travel or reducing our consumption and sustainability? 
This is certainly a, a big debate. Um, on the one hand, you want to experience the world, and the sites also want to share with the whole world, um, and, and the nations want to share with the whole world their unique heritage. So it's, uh, it's a difficult situation, uh, because you want to have tourists on the one hand, but um, also you need to take into account what tourism means in terms of using the resources and in terms of pollution and air travel and using very scarce water resources, for example. There may be places we don't have enough water in the future. And it's starting uh, to be problematic in some areas of Spain, for example, in the Mediterranean in, uh, in general. So uh, there may be issues we need to address um, much more forcefully in, in the future. I think uh, what is great is that there is a raising awareness about the impact of climate change on World Heritage Sites. There have been much more studies, um, especially on impacts in the Mediterranean, which may uh, mean increasing floods, like we have the situation in Venice with more and more aqua alta, higher aqua alta, which is impacting on the World Heritage Site, um, increasing in frequency of storms in these areas. And we have sites which may disappear. If you think of the glacier Ilulisat in Greenland, um, when the site was inscribed, they built a, a visitor platform to see the carving of the ice. Mm -hmm. You cannot see it anymore the carving of the ice from that visitor platform. Mm -hmm. Not possible. Or you think of some other natural sites, uh, the Cape Floral Province, maybe some of the flora will not be in the site anymore, so it will be a moving target. And uh, so there will be big changes coming towards us. And you have been involved with uh, preserving underwater memory and then uh, also history, uh, memory and dialogue projects. Yes, I was uh, from 2015 to 2018 also in charge of a number of other conventions, mm -hmm. including the 2001 Convention on Underwater Cultural Heritage, which is submerged landscapes or um, shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. And I did a mission, for example, to one of the uh, underwater cities, one of the oldest cities, 5,000 years old, which uh, is underwater in the south of Peloponnese. And you can go along the streets snorkeling, for example, mm -hmm. you can see it. And that reminds us also of the changes of the climate, because this is now submerged. I was also dealing with history, memory and dialogue, and that was a program which dealt with, especially with the slave route. And it's very much linked to World Heritage, because we have a number of World Heritage sites um, which are linked to the history of slavery not only on the African continent like Ile de Gore, um, but also the arrival sites um, in uh, some of the areas in, uh, for example, in Brazil. Um, and there are discussions of uh, even cemeteries in the United States. So we will see how this is going forward. But it's commemorating this part of the history of humanity. 
It's sometimes shocking. Some parts of the world. I was born in America, and in America, sometimes I'm shocked at the lack of not. I mean, I'm happy, very proud of our students, but the lack of knowledge of history, the very short-term memory. Um, uh, I'm sure the people you are engaging with uh, also have a long memory, but it's sometimes it's you part of your mission is also, to, I guess, to educate them to understand that what they need to preserve. I think that is um, is an important part. You can do it through the history of World Heritage Sites, mm -hmm. yes. and which is quite amazing uh, on whatever topic you would like to work on, mm -hmm. whether it's a Silk Road and you go along the road and there are a number of uh, sites preserved, or uh, it's the history of human evolution. Mm -hmm. If you look at number of uh, rock art sites and uh, what I find mo most amazing, I brought some um, African site managers to Azerbaijan where we have a place called Gobustan mm -hmm. and they saw many linkages between the rock art sites they mm -hmm. came from and, uh, and this place. So I think World Heritage is also very beautiful uh, from this point of view, bringing people together. Um, and reminding us that we have a shared history. Mm -hmm. And what are some things of just going there and being on the site that, I mean, you can, as you said, read it in books, but just the, that experience? Oh, this experience is, um, is amazing. Um, wherever I go, um, I love to, to speak with the people, mm -hmm. um, to experience uh, their history, uh, for example, the Philippine rice terraces. It's, it's breathtaking. They are called stairways to heaven. I had read a lot about it, but when I first went there, I couldn't believe it. I, it was really stairways to heaven. Totally amazing. And the, the diversity of um, their daily food production, not only the rice, but snails, but fish, uh, everything linked to the rice production and their rituals and songs. And I was dancing with them, uh, their traditional dances related to the rice production. So um, that was really amazing. Mm -hmm. And with your encounters of all these diverse cultures, um, I imagine, I don't know if that adds to a kind of I don't know how s spiritual you consider yourself, but I think I imagine it would just add, um, add to one's appreciation of humanity immensely. Mm -hmm. I am a spiritual uh, person also from my background and, and education, but um, it was very amazing when I uh, worked on, on a number of sacred places. Mm -hmm. And um, to respect the, um, the uh, spiritual connection of people to nature and to these places. I think this is, this is very important. And we worked at UNESCO also to get more respect mm -hmm. of visitors going to these places. And I was very proud that I was involved in, in the renomination project of Uluru Kata Tuta as a cultural landscape. Uh, this site in the center of Australia, which is among the most well-known sites, um, was inscribed for natural heritage reasons, natural heritage criteria. Uh, but in 1992, 
the Anangu people, through the government, wanted to have a renomination so that their culture would be uh, recognized globally. And you think, oh, that makes no big difference whether the site is on the World Heritage List as a natural site or whether it comes as a cultural landscape. What does it mean? It's on the World Heritage List. It meant a total different approach. So now the Anangu have a cultural resource center. They explain that they don't want you to climb the rock. Um, they explain their relations to uh, the different sacred sites around the rock, etc. And now in um, uh, very recently, in by the end of 2019, the rock was now closed for climbing because the Anangu, uh, they don't want us to climb the rock. Mm -hmm. Many people died by heart attacks, etc. because of the of the heat up there. So um, they didn't think uh, it was a good thing to do. So it's a fantastic uh, evolution uh, at this uh, cultural resource center and that we have now a site which is managed by the authorities together with the indigenous peoples. And that makes all the difference. So when I come as a tourist and the aboriginals explain the site to me, it's mm -hmm. totally different than if I just see a film or look at a flyer or an explanatory table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is their home and they are sharing yes, it with absolutely. you. Absolutely. Uh, as you come up to the next convention, what are some of the things that are being considered and uh, that you may try to include? Uh? Now we have the next World Heritage Committee meeting and as usual we have several hot topics. One mm -hmm. is the state of conservation mm -hmm. with more and more sites uh, on the World Heritage List we have more and more problems mm -hmm. and many of these sites are not managed with, um, as they should be. Mm -hmm. um, we still await a number of management plans to be finalized or updated um, we address issues such as mining or ill-advised development. We address uh, issues of how to deal uh, with risks and fires at World Heritage Sites. All sorts of issues and it's really often in countries where they don't have the means to do it themselves. So the World Heritage Convention in principle is there to get help for those sites where the authorities cannot deal with it. And that is the idea that we have a shared responsibility. So that will be discussed at the level of the World Heritage Committee. And just to go back to this, uh, more personally about your formation and your route to becoming a director, um, I imagine you didn't realize you, you came here when the I guess when the center was it was new here in Paris. Ninety two, yes. Um, but some like teachers who were important to you when they were awakening your interests in uh, cultural and landscape heritage. Um, that was very important both at Freiburg <coughs> University and at Hamburg University. My doctor father was a very interesting person. Uh, actually, there is at the moment an exhibition about him at Hamburg University. And he was born as the son of one of the last pastors, German pastors, in the former German colony, which is Namibia. Mm. 
Namibia uh, went into independence at the beginning of the 1990s, actually with the help of, uh, of Germany. And um, it was very, very interesting that he, as a white person, having been born in Namibia, always kept uh, a very good uh, relationship with the different people at Windhoek University. And he was very, very interested in decolonization. Mm -hmm. So um, he gave me um, the freedom to think about colonialism. He gave me the um, full support to work on topics which were not mainstream topics. And um, I think uh, that, um, that was something which really helped me. The other thing which was very important was, of course, my parents, who were very international. They, sp they were both teachers. My father uh, was a mathematician. And they um, spoke at home Esperanto, which is an international language, mm -hmm. an artificial language. And uh, our door was always open. We had people from all over the world there. So for me today, being at UNESCO was not <laughs> at all something unusual, um, working with uh, 193 countries, nothing unusual for me with my background, um, which is for other people uh, totally difficult um, working in an intercultural environment. But I'm always grateful for my parents for having had this openness and these connections to many countries around the world. Yeah. Well, you're very lucky. I, I think, uh, I don't want to say lucky because you have worked hard for it, but to be always surrounded by uh, new cultures and, and, and new projects to, that need to be preserved. I guess now, you know, ending uh, on, on a question about, as you think about the future, you think about education, um, cultural and natural heritage, and the kind of world we're leaving our children. Um, what do you feel are some ways we might improve our current systems? Oh, they are, this is a very, <laughs> very big question. Mm -hmm. um, I really think that um, we cannot leave uh, for future generations a world which is destroyed. So mm -hmm. what I can do in my power in the little field I'm working in globally um, I try to preserve the World Heritage Sites so that we can leave them in a good shape to future generations. But it is not an easy thing, um, especially uh, with the, uh, the rate at which we face climate change. Uh, I think this was long underestimated. Scientific advice was not uh, followed and uh, even questioned. And um, I think uh, this is something we really need to deal with, both for natural and for cultural heritage, to have an environment in which the basis for uh, our survival is, is given. But it, at the moment, I, uh, I see major challenges there. There is some hope because there is a, a rising awareness among young people they are getting more engaged than the generation before them. And um, they question what's happening by the government. So I think that is, is a positive sign. 
Um, for us at UNESCO, education is at the heart. Um, speaking different languages, trying to understand the other, and learning about your own culture and your own identity is always a strength wherever you go. Yeah, we care about our local culture and then that makes us understand the importance yes. of the international. Yes. Um, well, I thank you so much. This has been a, a beautiful, it's a beautiful mission of UNESCO and the Heritage uh, Center. And uh, I just want to thank you, uh, Mathilde Rosler, uh, for all that you have done to preserve and protect a natural and cultural heritage and your life uh, devoted to these heritage sites and programs. And also to thank UNESCO World Heritage Center uh, for everything you are doing around the world on a local and international level. Um, thank you for adding your voice thank to the you. creative process. <laughs> this interview was conducted by Mia Fang with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Feng Rui Shao. Assignment editor is Serena Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montilino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio.